Good morning. Please join me in the prayer for illumination. Let us pray. Oh God, you made us in your image and loved us enough to give us the best of what you have, your only Son, Jesus Christ. Grant us that we who have received so much from you might reflect that love and devotion, living proof of the hope that is in us so that we may. In Christ's name we pray, amen. The scripture this morning comes from John 3.16 and 2 Corinthians 8.24. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him won't perish, but will have eternal life. And from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 24. So show them the proof of your love and the reason we are so proud of you in such a way that the churches can see it. This is the word of the God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So far, we have talked about generosity as a pulse check we have talked about the kind of relationships that form us as disciples. We have talked about our hope and our vision for the future. And it was really exciting last week to get to read some of those great purple cards about your hope for the next year at Chapelwood. Hopes to continue to see more children and youth be present with us in worship to experience their leadership on a more consistent basis hopes for more adults to catch the spirit, to be enlivened in their own spiritual journey. Later on in the service, we're going to ask you to declare your heart with your estimate of giving cards. But today, I, want, I wanted to spend our time talking a little bit about what comes next. There is this sense sometimes that when we get to the stewardship series, it's okay to kind of check out for four weeks because we're just going to talk about money for four weeks and then it's done and you're good, right? In fact, Pastor Peter even felt like he could take off for this time. Okay, y'all, all right, y'all are awake, good. But stewardship, it isn't just kind of a four-week thing that we do sometime in October or September because we have to keep the lights turned on. Stewardship is a part of the bigger story, the bigger work of discipleship. It's not four weeks once a year, it's a lifelong practice. When I think about stewardship, funny enough, um, I think about my grandmother and my great aunt. And some of you were very sweet to send cards when my grandmother passed a couple of weeks ago. My great aunt passed many, many years ago. Um, but they were lifelong, faithful disciples. They were the people who brought me to church even before my parents went to church. We were one of those families that did it backwards. Um, I started going and then drug them along. My great aunt was the person that made sure I would never miss Sunday school, never miss vacation Bible school, and she even made me play handbells from the time I was in about the third grade. She made sure I got there. And when I think about my great-aunt and my grandmother, I remember their backyard. My great-aunt especially was a gardener. 
Now, you wouldn't have known that if you had known her earlier in her life. See, by the time I can really remember her, she was retired. She had been a vice president for the Hartford Insurance Company in New Orleans. And so she was really a high-powered executive before women did that a lot. And so when she retired, she retired. <laughs> she went out into her backyard and proceeded over the next 20 years to systematically turn it into one of the most beautiful places on earth. I'm fully convinced. And I'm sorry that I couldn't find a picture on really short notice. But they, they had the kind of backyard that was such a great garden, it didn't feel like a garden. You know what I'm talking about? Like you walked outside and it just felt like nature. But I promise you, every plant, every piece of mulch, <laughs> every bird feeder was hand-picked. She knew where every caterpillar lived in that garden, and she even fed the Blue Jays to make sure they'd eat the right ones. Great gardens are like that. English gardens are like that. They have this sense of wild effortlessness, but they are, in fact, highly cultivated. And in that, I think they teach us something about what it means to be a disciple. See, when we talk about being a mature disciple, we talk about bearing the fruits, right? Mature disciples love, are joyful, are patient, peaceful, generous, self-controlled, kind, faithful. We talk about those as fruits because they are indeed things you cultivate. They don't just happen, even though when we see them in somebody's life who is set upon Christ, they look wild and effortless and beautiful. It has been probably a lifetime of work and ongoing care to keep those fruits growing. When we talk about the life of discipleship, the kind of life that pours itself out, that sees our love overflow as God's does in generosity, we know that there are kind of four things that have to be going on. If you're going to have a well-cultivated life, you must know the seeds you're planting. You can't just cast to the wind. It may work for the parable, but it doesn't work for the careful garden. You must, attend, you must order attention and resources. You must be willing to weed out so that the best things can thrive and so that you will be known by the fruit that you bear. If you're going to know the seeds that you plant, you better start from the best source. Right? A good garden doesn't happen on cheap seed. We come from the best seed possible. Is this verse familiar? Say, say it with me. You know this one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him won't perish but have eternal life. 
And Robert Schnasey writes about generosity. This is the first place that he grounds. He says that we are generous because God has been generous to us. This verse is for many people the core and the rock. It is the most quoted verse in all of the Bible. And, and for many kids, it's the first verse that they learn. And it talks about a God who is giving. Not just who gives to meet our needs, but is willing to give even to the point of sacrifice. It talks about a God who loves that much. Who has planted within our very being the seeds of love, of generosity, and of unity. Because we are all grounded in this common story. Know the seed that is planted within you. It isn't one of fear or of timidity. It isn't one that worries resources will be scarce or division will tear us apart. It is one that says God has loved us and so we love. With our time, with our heart, with our energy, with our resources. We know that God has planted that kind of seed deep in our heart. And so it should be the kind of plant that grows. But you know, when you're planting a garden, it isn't often just one plant. It's many. And that takes a little bit of balance to do well. I never got very far into the garden thing. I, it is probably a sadness of my great aunt's life that I can kill anything. Anything. Whitney Reeves, I'm very sorry about that aloe plant. Um, it's, it's intense. Things come into my life and they die. They just do. And, and some of it is, is that I'm not very good at keeping up with what plant needs what thing and where they have to be to get the most out of it. See, funny story, you can't just stick a plant in the middle of your backyard and hope it will thrive, right? They need different things. They take different things. And a really beautiful garden, even the most wild-looking garden, has had some attention paid to where things order and what will draw your eye. Good gardeners know that you have to start with a plan. This one is from a gardening magazine. This is for a very dedicated gardener. But the plan takes into account what will need water and what will need shade and what is tallest and will draw your eye. You know, if you have too many plants in the same soil that need the same resources, they will compete with one another. I'm told instead you have to plant a few things that will give back mutually. You ever walk into somebody's garden and it's just nothing but kudzu? That would be mine, just, you know, okay. So if you haven't seen it, you can come to our house. Uh, our house is cut grass because that's what we can manage. But it's not very interesting. It's not particularly beautiful. We're doing really well when the HOA doesn't send us a letter. 
beautiful gardens, think about the, the fact that your attention will move, your eye will travel. They plan what is most important to be done, to be kept. They prioritize certain plants over others. Not because some plants are bad, but because what ultimately cultivates beauty is a sense of order and of balance. And we are the kind of disciples who were created for order. We serve the kind of God who brings order out of chaos. And when we start thinking about our lives, how we will spend our time and our resources, you better believe priorities become an important thing. I know sometimes from my generation, we say the word priorities and there's this like instantaneous like twitch, right? It's just, it's, it's no fun to talk about priorities. Priorities make it sound like we're gonna have to make hard choices, like, like it's just not gonna be any fun, but there's this little secret. Priorities aren't about restriction. Setting priorities are about making space for the things you love. See, when we don't prioritize our time, we don't prioritize our resources, it's easy for every little thing to come and kind of eat away at what we have to offer. And it becomes less enjoyable. Priorities create space for the things that we value. And they have that dual side. When we set priorities, we come to realize pretty quickly there's going to be some weeding out, right? Now, I, I, I'm a realist. I just, you know, some people are optimists, some people are pessimists. I say the glass is exactly halfway. That's where it is. That's how much you've got to work with. Anybody else? Yeah, a few. Okay, so there's a few of us who live there. I know that life is not like a static state. I really wish that the real world were as beautiful as the plans I could make in my head. Yes? Yes, I really wish that you could like set it out and this is how it's gonna be and then we would just work the plan down the line. But that's not really how the real world works. Things come up, old habits outlive usefulness. There are surprises, some of them big, some of them small, some of them Wonderful. And there often comes this point when, when you just kind of get a hundred little things begging for your attention when it's really tempting to just let it go, right? You ever seen a garden when you just let it go? Yeah. Okay, so if you look really hard in the middle of the screen, there are benches. There was a path to the back garden at some point. Someone planted this garden with the best of intentions. There's beautiful artwork on the fence. But somewhere along the way, the weeds got away from them. It went from wild natural beauty to wild chaos. And suddenly the garden is less useful. Does your calendar ever feel like this? Mine does. Yeah. Um, some days I open it up and go, ooh, there are three things in that hour. 
and none of them are going to happen. <laughs> when we aren't attentive first to the kingdom of God, it is easy for all of the little demands to start to turn our well-cultivated life of discipleship into a free-for-all of craziness. It's hard to know what's going to be a weed and what's not. And so it takes a little bit of constant attention. I found these three great rules this week for what actually constitutes a weed. Because if you Google, I know, I'm a Googler. If you Google weed and flower, you get lots of quotes from people who are way more optimistic than I am. Like, you know, the only difference between a weed and a flower is a judgment. <laughs> well, that's nice, but kudzu will eat your life. Um, so, and there's some truth. Wild things flow into our lives and bloom and can be amazing. So sometimes the most wonderful things weren't on the original plan. So I found these three rules for what a weed is to be more helpful. A weed is something you didn't plant and need gone. And here's, here's where we get, I go from preaching to meddling. I want you to think about your calendar and your checkbook. Is there anything you didn't plant and you need gone? if you're going to do more discipleship this year? A weed is something you did plant and now need gone. Some, you know, it's great if you grow a garden to have garlic in there. Do you know why a lot of people don't grow garlic? Because it does not stay where you put it. No. It, it, like kudzu, it will take over as well. You may want it. You plant it there. Maybe in your calendar there was a, a meeting that seemed like such a great idea when you took it on, and now it's maybe taken over more space than it should have. Weeds are something you did plant but now need gone. And weeds are the only plants that will thrive and take over while you are not looking. Funny thing. Spiritual disciplines take attention to cultivate. They're kind of like fine orchids. You have to get a balance, and you have to watch them. And if you just leave them alone and don't attend to prayer, to scripture reading, it doesn't really happen on its own, right? Much as I would love sermons to write themselves, they do not. But there, but there are things in your life that seem to take over time, attention, and resources, even if you are not looking at them. In fact, maybe they take over more time, attention, and resources when you are not paying attention to them. I wonder if those things are flowers or weeds. You have to do a little bit of weeding out. Because Nobody wants the garden that's been taken over. And when our lives get so full of the stuff that we didn't plant or that we no longer need or that takes over more than we ever intended to give it, then, then our hands get so full, there's no room in them for the work and the blessing that God has to offer. We talk about setting priorities and weeding out 
It's not to reprimand or to scold or to set boundaries. It's to say, what does God want to do with you this year? And how are you going to make that happen? Because I've met most of you. I know God has good plans for you. And I know God has amazing plans for us together as a church. Is there open space for new things to thrive? Because others are watching. And they will know who we are by our fruit. Our second reading this morning was from 2 Corinthians. It's one of those Pauline epistles we don't spend a lot of time in. We, we read 1 Corinthians a lot, right? Love is patient, love is kind, love is... Yeah, can do it all day. There's a reason we don't really read 2 Corinthians quite as much. The Corinthian church is probably the church that we know the most about Paul and his relationship with. In part because we have two letters in the canon, but also because we see it talked about in other places. The Corinthian church I often like to call the solid C student, right? Philippians were that kid, they were me, let's just be honest, they were me. They were that kid in class that broke the curve, right? They are always the best, they are just a joy to Paul's heart. Galatians and Ephesians are the kid that maybe needed a little extra tutoring, right? Read those letters again, there's some frustration there. Corinthians are that solid C student. They have so much potential. And when Paul leaves them after the first visit, he is excited, he is ready to go, but along the way, they get a little off track. They get kind of comfortable with where they are, and they start listening to voices that aren't of the gospel. And so in between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, there's a letter we don't have but we know about, and it's called the Letter of Tears. And it's Paul just fighting with them. They've broken his heart, and he has broken theirs, and they're trying to get through the thing. And so by the time he writes 2 Corinthians, as he's nearing end of his ministry, he starts to say, okay, you guys, I believe in you. I know that you can do this. I know that you know the gospel and that you have so much potential to impact your community. But we have to get clear on a few things. And all of 1 through 7 has led up to this climax that we heard in 8. Show them the proof of your love and the reason we are so proud of it in such a way that the churches it. Paul wants to remind them that love has been the seed that was planted in their heart, the same love that led God to sacrifice his only son for them. That is the gospel that they have to proclaim, but the fruit has to make it out. Between the seed and the harvest, there has to be some proof of that love in such a way that all the churches can see it. 
The life of discipleship isn't just a plan on a piece of paper. And it doesn't just happen because we want it to. It happens because we are careful about the cultivation. Because we know the seed that God has planted in our heart. Because we're willing to spend the time and the effort to weed and to water so that there is a harvest reaped, not just for our own reward, but as proof of love to the world. I don't know about you, it's kind of a long week in my world. Anybody else? Kind of a long week. And it wasn't the kind of week where proof of love was particularly obvious. Amen? I think we are coming into a season where this harvest is sorely needed. Where the witness of the church needs to get beyond Sunday morning. We are coming into a season where we have to be ready to show the proof of love, not just to the church, but to the world. That's going to mean some careful cultivation. That's going to mean tending the soul, because you have to take care of yourself if you're going to work the farm. But it's also going to mean cultivating our life together as a church, setting some priorities for what we want to see happen in our community, and being willing to commit ourselves to them. And I'm not just talking about our money. You got an estimate of giving card this week. We talked about it for three weeks. I hope you have brought it back. I hope that you have had a conversation with Jesus about how you want to share your financial resources. But those aren't the only things at your disposal. You came in this morning in your bulletin. Hopefully it made it in your bulletin. There was tucked another card. A card that asked you to think about how you will cultivate your own life of discipleship this year. How you will attend to the other resources that God has given you. How much time will you spend this year in worship? Because if the message that's coming from the world out there is not one of love and unity and sharing, then you better be grounded in a place that's saying, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And how much time will you spend on your own in prayer and in study? How much time will you spend with other Christians in small group growing? Will you cultivate your own garden? And then how much time will you spend sharing forward the harvest of love? Will you put your hands in service, both to this body and to our community? I promise you that Michael and Paul Myler and the whole serve team have a wealth of opportunities if our hands are open and ready.
I know I've sprung this card on you as a surprise, but sometimes first impulses are the best. And so during the offertory time, I'm going to ask you to bring forward both cards. Your estimate of giving that I hope you brought and are also available for you at the end of the pew, if you so need. But also your estimate of time. How much time will you commit to your life of discipleship? this year. During the offertory, we're going to ask you to come and, and not just drop them in the basket because these are serious matters. Yes, church? So we're going to ask you to come and to pray and to make those a commitment between you and God. This isn't something your pastor is going to guilt you about. This isn't something we're going to chase after you with a stick, though if you'd like accountability partners, I can certainly help you find them. This is between you and God. It is an offering of first things, not only of finances, but the first gift of time. Because I don't know about your life, but time is certainly the more scarce resource in mine. And therefore, probably the greater tithe. We have such a great God who has planted seeds within our heart, who has shown forth love that overflows again and again and again. In this season, I ask you to prayerfully consider how will you tend to the growing of the seed that has been planted in your heart and what fruit will you offer to the world? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.